Hello everyone, it's the intro to the intro. Just a quick message to let you know that if you want to get straight to Adam Didick, skip through to about 35 minutes. The first 35 minutes is Blake and I talking about note-taking during the subjective history, talking about kids' footwear. Uh, what else do we talk about? We, oh, talked, we about talked about Achilles rehab, positive about knee patient injections. experiences. Yeah, yep. discharging ACL patients. Yep. Yeah, that was probably about it. So feel free to listen. Otherwise, skip through straight to Adam Didick, part one. Welcome back to the Sports Medicine Project. Hope you're all having a lovely start to the week. Welcome to a bunch of new listeners. We've got some people over in Spain, Madrid, India, and welcome to my co-host, Sub97 Half Marathon on a hilly course, very windy, not in the barefoot shoes, in a vapor flies, Kelly Cortic. How you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well. We were just saying what sounds better, 197 or 137. 97. What's the PB for the Gold Coast this year? You're going for sub 90. <coughs> it's all right. For this year? Yeah. Oh, I think oh no, you're doing the marathon, marathon, hey. And sub 330. Yeah. Yeah, that's what very about nice. You? Uh, I don't know. I might, I don't know. I might just do that with you. Would the be marathon. fun. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the half marathon. Depends how this base building's going. My aerobic threshold is rising. I can feel the lactate as I'm running. I can you basically don't want to want... feel it though. No, no, no. When you when you feel it, that's when it's bad. Well, let me finish the sentence. So I can feel it, and what I've been able to do now—I don't know if any other runner is able to do this—but I've been able to train <laughs> myself to convert the lactate via oxygen to puvate, so then I can basically absorb that. For the new listeners, have you know Blake is rather sarcastic. Yeah. I probably should have said that at the start to to our couple hundred new listeners. So do you know Joe was saying to me this week that he still can't even tell when you're being sarcastic and real. Yeah, yeah. And you know Joe. Yeah, I've really, I've <laughs> developed a habit. I can, yeah. I don't know what it is. I can just say that and just stare at someone like it's true. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. Because you're probably a good liar too. No, I would never lie. Lying's the worst. <laughs> I can't lie unless I've seen the papers. But anyway, welcome to, we're going to have part, well, it's going to be, it's part one. It's a longer episode with Adam Biddick from Team Tempo Run. We, funnily enough, which is awesome, I really appreciate that from Adam. We we did the hour and we got through, what, I think we got through maybe five or six questions. And (laughs) he's like, yeah, he's like, have you guys, and we're like, oh, we would really love to do a part two, but we don't really like to ask because they're donating their time. We want their knowledge to then to be able to share on our platforms. And he was like, yeah, I'm happy to do a part two. So it's part one, but it's a full episode and there'll be another part two. It was great. Sometime in the near future. We haven't actually recorded that yet. Yeah, yep, that was really good. I enjoyed it. Did you want to get into your, your highs and lows? Because we'll no, keep this shorter than last we, time. We just went through this. What the highs and lows? You're doing your highs and lows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, my, my clinical highs this week, and I posted this on the Instagram story, a patient of mine, and yeah, he was so happy. He was like, I uh, said to him, I was like, hey, do you mind, you know, why not I want to use this for an accreditation thing, and I want to use it for a case study with the students, and also I want to use it on our socials, is that fine? No identifying information, basically just your feet, which sounds a little bit odd that I want his, his feet pics and feet videos, but... Well, it doesn't, because you're a podiatrist. Yeah. 
Yeah, true. Well, he, he'd been suffering for a very long time, three years with bilateral and surgical Achilles and five years with pretty severe, what I'm assuming is, is knee osteoarthritis. Really healthy, older gentleman, spent a lot of time on his feet. He'd try and he'd seen physio before and he tried a lot of passive modalities, modalities like needling and massage and stretching, which had given him some relief, which is fine, but nothing where they'd focus you know, solely on the rehab and trying to remove some of those provocative loads like he spent a lot of time standing and something as simple as just putting in some heel lifts and then him sitting a little bit more at his workbench helped a lot but anyway so saw him on Friday been seeing him for six months and come in and everyone's always in a good mood on the Friday he comes in and, and sits down and we realize you know how have things been since I saw you last and he just goes it's great it's really, really good. Oh, my Achilles feel incredible. Gets up and then just starts jumping. And I've got hard lino flooring in my room. Just starts jumping and bouncing and, and everything. And it was just incredible. And he couldn't even do a single leg half raise when I very first saw him. That's so, fun. yeah, that was, was great. And he, he'd he had... I have to look at the injection. I don't think it was hyaluronic acid. The, it's like a... Uh, it's a... Hyaluronic acid? No, not hyaluronic acid. I, I put that, that on my skin. It's a... <laughs> You can, they use it in an injection sometimes, the PRP, really? yeah, and saline. It's the one where it's like an artificial goo for your knees. It oh, works yeah. with color. I don't know what it's called. Sip, sip, sin, sin. Sin. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, SINs is a clinical name. So we'd had that, and it was knees were like to 99%. Yeah, I remember as also up on the sunny coast raving about that, and then that's the end of it. I've never heard anyone else talking about it since yeah. then. Well, he, he, I was like, this sounds really cool. Why is it this not a bigger thing? Yeah, so he did well with it. Apparently, it only lasts for 12 months, and it's quite varied, and you can have multiple injections, like weeks apart, but he only had one, and it worked well. But uh, yeah, saw him in the gym, and... Calf raises. He's like, I'm doing, I'm doing this every second day. He nearly spends between twenty and thirty minutes every second day working on his strength and conditioning. I'm like, this is incredible. And anyway, I was getting to do some bounces, some double leg pogos, which is like my my special test for people, the non-athlete person who I want to see how their tendons, lower limb tendons respond. And yeah, he's bouncing up and down really quick. And I was like, great, how you been going? Three sets of twenty. He's like, I've been doing. I'll tell the story. He's like, I've been doing five sets of a hundred of this. And I was like, wow. That's incredible. You're an older gentleman, not had a big life or a. What's he wanted? Sorry, what not sport not had he? a. He doesn't play any sport. I don't think he'd had like he hadn't had a big life of sport or anything like that. And just he's just adapted and become become so capable. Yeah, it was really one of those patients where it really made me so happy to be a health health practitioner to help yeah. somebody do that and it was really motivating because I'm like I want I want this to be happening all the time so I'm like I need to get better and reflect and try and get this as much as I can I had a good win sorry I'm gonna no, that's um, fine that was all it was boycott I don't think boycott boycott takeover I didn't boycott when you I think it means I'm gonna take over I thought it's Your when story. you you don't go to something for a reason Ah. Uh. You know, on the inside running when they type in, I've always been scared to do it. Withdraw from commercial or social relations with as a punishment or protest. Huh. Well, you can use that anyway. I don't know if that makes sense. Anyway, get stuck in Anyways, it. I'm going to be, yeah. So I discharged, but didn't discharge, a patient who has been doing ACL rehab with us for two over two years now. Mm. And he's back playing basketball and feels great and no issues with his knee at all and he just he was just put in the really good hard work with mm. rehab and the benefits are now really paying off 
he's going to still come in every couple of months just for for testing and retesting to see how things are tracking and mm. making sure that he's maintaining his power and his strength and things like that but yeah it was just really cool because it was that conversation we were like what, what's next like do you want to keep coming back or do you want to go and do your own thing or mm. do you want to float like it's up to you you've been coming for two years so consistently i'm happy for you to make that call it was yeah. cool yeah, great. One of the lows this week for me, and I'm sure every clinician can relate, I didn't get my notes and letters and work cover reports done, and I've just spent the last two hours getting them done, and it is such a... It takes up so much of my bandwidth to focus and get these done on the weekend when I'm not in work mode, when I want to be doing other things. Like I want to be focusing on my research. I want to be creating content. I want to be doing the podcast, camping, training, that kind of thing. And yeah, it's just, it's so draining doing that stuff when you're not already in the work mode. Then you've got to think back four or five days, what you're writing in your notes. And if your notes aren't perfect, all right, completely done. You then got to translate that to the report. Is so, this a one-off for you or is this typical where you're not on uh, top of your notes? And it's letters? a one-off to this degree. I'm usually pretty, because I've been in this situation before when I started. I don't know. It's a really hard, I, I really struggle to give advice on this. Because I, and I've seen lots of evidence for both, both camps. I don't know if it's, if you're able to get your notes and letters and everything done within the appointment. Because that's the idea of it. Where you've got a 30 minute appointment, you get them out, or an hour appointment, you get them out five or 10 minutes earlier. And then you do all your letters and reports and referrals and get it all done there. And then you're ready for the next patient. I think that's the way that the model is meant to work. That's not how how we do it. But I assume that would be the most efficient way. And that way you finish at 4.30 or whatever time you finish and you're done and go home. Because I do, I do not know any practitioner I have ever met that hasn't done note or work at home or on the weekend. And the other thing I've been doing is we have an hour for lunch and I usually train in the gym in that, but I've been even just dedicating 10 to 20 minutes to get that done. But then if you work with a lot of other practitioners, we work with lots of physios and, and orthopods and, and docs and things like that. And you're always sending messages to say, hey, I just saw this patient. This is what I'm thinking. This is what we're doing. You know, go back and see them. We're calling work cover. It takes up a lot of time. So I can't imagine how you could get it done every single time in the appointment. Mm. I can't. I, I don't get my notes done throughout the appointments. Mm. And most days I finish later. I finish at seven and I don't want to stay any later. Mm. So I go home as soon as I finish with my last patient. But I always get to work about earlier. 30 minutes earlier and I will get my notes done from the day before. In, before yeah. I start the next day yeah. is what I typically tend to do. Yeah, which is fine and, and definitely appropriate. Got, and this is probably not great advice. If I've got a backlog of letters, then I'll do them in my lunch break, mm. usually. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, if someone sort of last minute cancels or there is space in the diary, I'll try and get it done then, of course. Mm. But if I am a bit more booked out and don't have the time, then I'll just do them in my lunch break and try and smash them out and mm. have lunch. I like that some clinics... And oh, that's probably something else we could add. If you're a podiatrist listening to this, we are achieve podiatry myself and Justin looking for a podiatrist that wants to work in a specialty sports medicine clinic with sports doctors, sports dietitians, sports physios, orthopedic foot and ankle surgeons up in Port Macquarie. And if that interests you, head to our website. There's some stuff in there to, to have a look at that or reach out to us and we can have a bit of a chat 
about that, but talking about younger clinicians and new resident, maybe even senior clinicians, I really like if people schedule in admin blocks or if bosses or mentors or organizations do that. I think that's really appropriate and I think it yeah. takes a big stress. So you work a 36 hour week with two hours of admin. Then I can also see the flip side where it's like that's eating into the profit of the business and that's two extra patients with 10 practitioners. That might be 20 extra patients. That might be an extra thousand dollars of profit, which then could correlate to an awesome CPD event or we take everyone out for lunch on the weekend. So it's hard. Uh, I really, I don't know. I try to, I mean, you like you're saying 30 minutes earlier to work. Do you get paid for that 30 minutes? Yeah. No. Should you get paid for that 30 minutes? I don't know. Are you expected to have all your notes done? Yes, that's a medico legal. You've got to have it done and all your letters and things like that. But yeah, I don't know what time. And depends on the patients that you see. Like yeah. if some of the patients that I saw this week were some really complex foot and ankle, odd, unique things that really didn't fit into any box. And yeah. I spent the, the whole hour, probably an hour and 10 minutes with, with all of them just because I really needed to have that time. Yeah. But then I would understand some of the other groups, physio groups like Michael Risk and I move you, they talk about front loading. Perhaps if you're an hour appointment, you only get them in for 50 minutes but then reschedule them for four days and that way you can have that 10 minutes for your notes. We've got our initials mm. and we've got 45 minute initials. Yeah. If I've got someone in but for an hour... But paying for that too though. Yeah. yeah if I someone's in for an hour, I, I'm usually all right with getting the notes done because mm. an hour just sometimes for less complex things feels like a long time. For more complex things, I'm very grateful that we have it. But as anyone that's in for a 45-minute appointment, there's no chance I'm getting those notes done in that appointment. Yeah. I guess my advice would be, and this is what I've done for myself, and I can only give, give that advice, is trying to get as much done as you possibly can within the appointment. So you can usually get your subjective, a little bit of objective. And sometimes when, you, when I sit down with them right at the end, I'll quickly jot down what I'm like, hey, I'm just going to write this down. This is what we're at. This is what I want you to do. And then I can kind of say the treatment. And then the other stuff I'm going to put in later, I guess, the objective test. Uh, anyway, yep. So I would, would do that. Get as much as you can, sorry, much as you can done. And then I would dedicate five or 10 minutes of your lunch break. Oh, I do to get as much as you can done. And then five, 10, 15 minutes. And if you really sit there and really just focus on it you can get your yeah, notes done quick. pretty quick yeah put your phone away just go hey everyone no one come in to distract Close me door. Yeah, yeah and just focus on it and you can really get get a lot done and you almost get in the mood so because then it adds up throughout the week mm. and yeah I, that's probably the only advice that i could I... recommend or well, last one sorry if you are really struggling and it's happening consistently talk to your mentor talk to your boss talk to someone else who was really good in the clinic or talk to them about scheduling a 30 minute block in once every three days or once every two days where I'm like, hey, I'm really struggling. I don't, I don't want it to affect my quality. I don't want to be staying late. I will get better at it, but can I please just have a 30 minute block? Mm. The only other thing that I would say or comment on from what you just said is mm. I don't do this. I don't write my notes while they're talking. I think if someone's... In the giving, subjective. Yeah, when someone's talking to me, during their subjective, I will remember what they're saying so much more if I just sit there and listen to them. If I'm trying to write notes at the same time, as we've spoken about before, you know, your attention span and your ability to multitask is not actually that great. So if you're writing notes and thinking about what you're writing while they're still talking to you, mm. I think that you're going to miss things. And I think that it makes it harder to remember everything that they've told you. The only thing that I will write down during 
the subjective is their like training regime or what they do for work and things like that the rest of it I will just sit and listen and not touch my computer really Mm. I had no idea oh and their medical history as well yeah I wrote that down I couldn't disagree with that more that's incredible I had no idea that you did that Mm. doesn't mean that it's wrong or right I well I I don't look at my computer like I can type without looking is one thing so I can speak with them and I don't have the bandwidth I don't want to dedicate my bandwidth to thinking about what they said because for some people say for a runner I'm I really want to know and like you said you take their training history I want to know all about their training history and no way I can remember that they say yeah Monday, that's the only thing that's the, the thing that I write down take. and then um, medical conditions yeah so that's what I write that down medications family yeah. family history previous injuries what happened to them do they have any pain with those injuries I'll write all that down how's their sleep quality also I'll ask and I'll always write down what's their family I challenge you though mm. to not write these things down and just dedicate the time to listen so think about think but about what, what's patients, the benefit to that just, just listen hear me out so think about what patients really value is a clinician who can listen to them and if you are just sitting there wholeheartedly committing to listening to their story without distracting yourself with anything else mm. i challenge you to then sit down and write your notes afterwards i bet you you'll remember more than you think i do not think that it is valuable to dedicate an hour. That would take me a really long time, and so would for younger clinicians to write a full medical note plus reports plus referrers for what if someone's seeing 20 people in a day? Like you imagine, so if someone comes in... I'm not talking about notes and reports. I'm not talking about reports. I'm just talking about the initial consult but you're you're adding that on to the stuff that they've already got to do so when someone if someone comes down sorry someone sits down we'll say great have you seen a podiatrist before have you been in here before i'm blake this is our clinic this is what we typically do this is what i do this is where i work and then i'll say great tell me about and i've already looked at their new patient form we go great tell me about what's happening with the inside of your ankle they'll tell me the whole story and then i'll say something along the lines of great um, we're going to run through things in a nice logical order and we're going to get a good overall picture and then we'll talk a little bit more about the foot. But I just want to get, you know, your medical history and that kind of thing. They go, great, yep, that's fine. And then I turn to my computer and I, because I want to know about their family, their kids, what interests them, their hobbies, what do they do for work, how much time they spend on their feet. I ask them all these questions too. Yeah, I just can't. I, I think it's so much more efficient and productive to get it all down. Because what happens if you're talking with them and you're like, oh, I need to remember something, and then you've just had six patients. How do you... Do you are you able to remember? Do you remember? think you could be wrong? Oh, yeah. How I could, confident I could be. are you that you're right? I'm, pr- I'm confident that this is a pretty efficient way because I don't see anyone else do it... I think it's efficient. A, I don't I see think... anyone else do it another way. And I've sat in with so... I would always sit in with very senior podiatrists and physios and i've not seen it done any other way and i would think if it was a better way but perhaps i am just try it try it with one patient what do you think do you think it's more efficient and you're able to focus more yeah probably more efficient to write your notes as you go i remember much more of what they tell me if i'm only focusing on what they're saying let me add this then to you then so let's say you you're you do it because you think you're more engaging have you ever asked how a patient feels? Do you ever think a patient thinks, oh, is she writing this down? How is she going to remember all this? Why isn't she writing this down? Every other health practitioner I see writes this down. How is she going to be able to remember all my medications? How is she going to be able to remember? Because I said I write that down. I write or, down or, or, their medical or, sorry, history, their sorry. medications and their training and their work. So I, all, I all the other stuff down. they tell you, 
when it's sore, when it's all this, when it's I that. It. But how do you know that they know that? So, like, do you ever think that maybe the patient would feel like, is she remembering all this? Like, do you, do you, would you say that? Like, if I'm telling someone a whole story that I've had pain for 12 months and they're just sitting there looking at me, engaging and listening, I completely get that they're focused on me. But I'm also thinking, are you going to be able to remember all this? Why aren't you writing any of this down? Do you not think that? You don't think a patient ever thinks that after they've just, after they're talking, talking and talking and you're asking lots of questions as well. Yeah, because I'm asking them questions about what they've just told me, therefore making it obvious that I'm listening to what they're saying. Yeah, but does that mean that you're then going to remember it in a couple of days? Because if I say, hey, 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 this... Do you think the majority of people think about the note-taking process of health professionals? Well, if they're telling you their story, they're probably wondering how you're going to remember and, and know all this. I've had people say, do you want me to say that? Do you want me to say that again? Did you get that? Because some people have had pain for... But what if someone's had pain for, for five years? I, I and remember it. I listen to them well enough that I remember it. You're not a good listener as it is. Because I tell you things five times before you remember what I've actually told you. You can't. That's way different. You and I are together. That's yeah. way, way different. I tell you things all the time yeah, and you don't remember. You that's different. you more about me. Apparently, you should. That's, so that's why it's different. It's a different relationship. More. The therapeutic relationship is a lot different to partners. You have to, would ha- I would assume, would have to agree with that. I'm going to say this. I'm just going to say it on the podcast on record. The relationship I have with my patient is very different to the relationship I have you, with you. And if you disagree, I don't. I wouldn't think that's right. <laughs> I, I do agree with that. Oh, sweet. I'm just saying that I can remember what people say. Maybe I've just got a good memory. I don't know. Yeah. But I will yeah, remember okay. everything. I, oh, the other thing that I write down is how long they've had it for. That's the other thing yeah. that I write down. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't tried the other way. Uh, and I, I'm just, you know, it's just like when you hear something new for the first time, it sounds so different that you think maybe it's, there's no way it could be right. But it definitely could be. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. But also, you're right. You're looking at them and you're engaging with them. I, do, I would just find it hard to remember, especially if I've just seen five or six patients and then I'm going back to sit down for the day. Because I find if I'm going back to write notes at lunch, I've just had seven patients. Like, great. What, what was that one? Or they both, they both had heel pain, but this one actually hurts more in the morning, whereas this yeah, one's in the afternoon. because you're limited to one body part, so they must all blur together. I've got the luxury of working with the mm, whole body, so I have true. the ability to distinguish between people and their body parts. Okay, so podiatrists should manage... So podiatrists are maybe a bit better to do it the way that it's been or it's always done, whereas physios should... I'm not saying what anyone should or shouldn't do. Wait, can I just have a closing statement? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to to harp on that. I agree that it is more efficient to write notes as you go. However, I think I can listen to them better Mm. and I can make them feel more listened to and I can engage in their story better if I am listening to them without multitasking Mm. and writing notes at the same time. I know that it takes more time and I know that it's going to be more of a pain later on, but I think there's more value in it and I like doing it better that way. I remember it better Mm. later on if I am half writing their notes while listening to them because I've done it that way before too. That's what I used to do. I used to forget everything that they told me because I was too focused on what I was writing and I wasn't listening to a thing they were saying. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I haven't tried the other way. My closing statement is I haven't tried the other way and there is no wrong or right way and people... 
different modalities work for people on an individual level compared to a group level. So maybe on a group level, your way or my way might be a little bit easier achievable, but on an individual level, they may be completely different. But I definitely, I will try that. And I can see pros and cons to both. Yeah. Cool. I actually can't believe I didn't know that, that you ever did that. What way did you learn in uni? I know. Yeah. Have you had seen other practitioners do that as well? What? The way that you, you do it? Dave recommends doing it like that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm I used to, when I was up on the sunny coast, I used to write, try and write, the, write mm. it all down. And mm. then like, yeah, half, probably halfway through work, working on the sunny coast, I stopped doing that because I just couldn't concentrate yeah. enough. Yeah, and you're never doing... I mean, you do your notes as much as anyone else. Like, you're never doing them on the weekends or anything like that. You always get them done. I never do notes at home, ever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I always do notes at home. You're like, yeah, looking at me like, I never do notes at home, but I know you do. Yeah, so you're saying how inefficient it is, but who's the more <laughs> inefficient one? Yeah, well, let me put this to you. If I do it your way... You and I will never be together again because I'll be always writing notes. I'll come and go, great, I've got six hours of note writing to do because I didn't write anything down. I might even let it bring my computer. That might be a good thing every now and then. I might just sit there and just go, oh yeah, where's your computer? I go, it's all up here and just point to my brain and go, talk to me, talk to me about it. You know, some of the hospitals do paper notes. That's crazy, hey? Yeah. That's Emma still does paper notes. Yeah, I don't know how she... I mean, no. that seems to me that, like that's inefficient. However, maybe it works. Yeah. I don't know. I guess you'd be really good at the real short form. Yeah. Like short-formed, abbreviated to know what you say. Oh, no, well, oh, I don't know. That's, that's tricky. No, well, but I don't think that she writes it during the consult either. I think that that all has to be done later. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. Do you have any other, other highs and lows to leave our lovely listeners? No, I think we've rambled with? enough. Yeah, let's put that up on the story and see what people prefer. And hopefully, if you do it a different way, please just send us a voice message or a a little bit of a detail as to why you do it that way. And from listening to Kelly and I, if there's something that we haven't mentioned that we didn't even think of, send us a message as well. Dictating notes. That's yeah, I tried that on, I tried that on Clinico because Clinico you can get on your phone. I tried that when I did a couple of home visits. It was, yeah, I know the doctors do that. I think it's mm. achievable, but I think it there's a big steep learning curve to be able to speak how you want the notes to come out mm. as well. But still, that, that could be possible. And the reason I love, love these discussions and dialogues because we're both very open-minded to new ways and new reflection points that we haven't even thought of. Like if someone says... Kelly's way this is why it's better and it's like I didn't even think of that I've been doing it wrong not wrong but I could be doing it better in the last three years or vice versa that's what we want from this podcast that's what we want from our content people not to say right or wrong but to gain a better understanding and you have that that reiteration where you get better and better and more efficient and you love your job more and you get better outcomes with your patients Mm-hmm. Nice little tie-in, hey, you reckon? Mm. Mm. I've been practising because I've been writing research, a so little tie-in to the paragraph. I feel like we haven't had a good debate like that in a while. Yeah, and people think... Griffiths will like it. Yeah, you will. People think <laughs> we've gone soft on each other. Compared to the first one, throwing punches. <laughs> what else? What do you think of Donald Trump? No, I can start talking about politics. We should... Uh, we did try and record a podcast while we were running, in our, doing our long run today. 
but all you could hear was my trail pack just rattling around and our heavy breathing oh, and our landing on the ground. Yeah, let's. We've got twenty. It's on twenty four minutes. I just want to mention it in like a couple of minutes, just because we'll you talk go. about it. I next. won't interrupt you. You do just okay. go. Only give because a, give us give us a five minute monologue on kids fit footwear. Only because kids go back to school the week after, so the yeah. podcast won't be out. Go do it. Yeah. All right, buddy. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about kids footwear quickly. The the old way was, I guess, kids need supportive, well-strapped or fastened high heel, not high-heeled, but a heel of two, two and a half centimetre, torsional rigidity and lots of, sorry, not a lot of bending in the toes. They were the things that you need to look for to find a good school shoe for your child. Now, to the A-Pod A's credit, they have definitely this year with their marketing and, and their posters that they've created, they've recommended the shoe fits well, a centimeter difference for the toe. I think they mentioned something about fastening and also to get fitted by a professional, whether that be a health practitioner or someone in retail. But what I wanted to talk about is the the whole framework of kids' footwear. We've tried to break it down into four general categories. So category one, we're talking about kids with no disability or pathology and no pain, just looking for a school shoe, which is a majority of the population. Two would be that same population, but with pain. Three would be children and adolescents with disabilities and pathologies. And these can be, um, and they are without pain. So kids with either you know Down syndrome, chromosome deletions, or any pathology that relates in some effect to their musculoskeletal or neurological condition. Um, sorry, neurological system. So as a result, we're talking about Down syndrome, it might be deformity, it might be low tone, it might be fatigue, those kind of things. And then that same category, but without, sorry, with pain. Yeah. So we know that those last two categories, it's always hard to get a grasp and understanding if there is pain because reporting is, is tricky. But category one, when we're talking about kids with no pain, the general recommendation should be a shoe that fits well. That's an easy thing to get right. Fits well in shape and fits well in width. There is a lot of research now, good quality research, to show that children have shoes that don't fit. And that can be both in width and length in all countries. Australia, Netherlands, Finland, that kind of thing. So that's really important. Now, I like to say that kids do, or sorry, are more likely to benefit from an anatomical fitting shoe. Because kids are generally pretty flexible and floppy, when their foot hits the ground, the ground reaction force will cause their feet and their forefoot to splay. So they need a little bit extra room in the shoe. And they've usually got a wider a wider forefoot. So an anatomical fitting shoe is generally better for, for them. for those of you guys who don't know what an anatomically fitting shoe is, can you explain that? Yes, yeah, that's, that's hard. I've never actually explained what it is. But if you're, look up Topo or look up Ultra, and it's basically a shoe shape where the forefoot is actually the widest part. So instead of it tapering off from the second toe and tapering down, it tapers around and you get more room. So you imagine your foot, and hopefully your anatomy is pretty up to date. If you imagine where your fifth metatarsal phalangeal joint is, it's actually at the widest point there rather than tapering down. So you imagine a really pointy shoe, you know, it's almost the opposite of that. Converse. Yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty easy recommendation. And there's no harm in going like that. Now, I'm not saying they need to have it or they're going to have injury, but I think that they would feel 
logically and maybe biomechanically they would feel more comfortable however you don't know until you put it on and if they wear it for six months and say there's no difference well you've kind of got your answer so that's one general recommendation anatomical fitting and probably something that's protective as well so that just means a flat sole with a bit of not a bit of cushion sorry but a sole that whether it be five or ten millimeters just something to protect their foot it doesn't have to have Velcro or laces. It just has to fit their foot and hold their foot secure so it's not coming off. And when we talk about the heel, I know the advice from the barefoot community is no heel. It should be flat, flexible, and, and floppy, and you can twist it and things like that. I can definitely see that that can be recommended. I just don't know if it has to. And I don't know if they're not in that, it's harmful for them to be in. I definitely think it needs to be anatomical fitting. And I guess you could argue that less shoe equates to more tissue stress which then equates to hopefully the foot and the lower limb becoming more adapted and stronger so then we talk about the other group category two is that same group but with pain there might be severs medial ankle pain that group typically does better with a shoe more as a medical device so it might be a shoe that's really soft for someone with severs or they might have some medial ankle pain so an actual supportive shoe is going to help them so if that's the case, not all kids should be in barefoot, flat, flexible, floppy shoes. They may need those shoes as medical devices. And then the third group, this is the harder harder one, when there is pain and someone with low tone or, or fatigue, generally I've just seen anecdotally those groups do better with supportive shoes and it's hard to grasp how that's a, just how they say it's better or how it is better, but usually they don't want to take their shoes off the teachers and carers and parents are saying they want to wear their shoes, they're walking more, they're engaging with physio more, OT more, they're doing more of their meaningful activity just by wearing the shoes. I don't know what the mechanism of that. I'm not going to say that it puts their foot into neutral. Perhaps it just makes it... There's more... It's like a sensory thing. Yeah, sensory thing, or the shoes doing more of the work to facilitate their gait so the body's not under as much stress. I, I, I don't know. And then the other fourth group is when there isn't any pain... And it's the same thing. You've just got to try and get those metrics if they're able to report, if there is any discomfort or if there's any fatigue. But generally, seeing those groups in supportive shoes when they're you know flat, flexible, floppy feet and they're getting fatigued and they're taking their shoes off and they can't walk more than 25 minutes, they generally are doing better with, with supportive shoes. Now, it's not always, and you've got to see, and it's always hard, but that's a general quick overview of those four categories. Would you add anything into that. So if you're a mum, a parent or a clinician and someone comes in and they are great, I've got no pain, no deformity, child functions really well and you've determined that with some jumping and some testing and all that kind of thing. Great, what school shoes should I go into? Great, I would send people to Barefoot Freedom with an online store to say that you can get a shoe. What's going to be best beneficial is less shoe generally and parents are usually pretty happy with that. Like you don't need something supportive. Everything's going really well. We can't predict injury in the future and you're playing and jumping around. If you go into an anatomical fitting shoe that's relatively flat and pretty flexible, it's going to put more stress through the body, but we hope that then correlates to more adaptability and hopefully an increased overall capacity. And we know that from the other research where, and you can kind of maybe correlate it where kids do better when they play a multitude of sports which you would then mean that when kids are exposed to different movements and different stresses they adapt and they're stronger when they're older so you could almost argue that but on the flip side i wanted to say that supportive shoes for kids 
if you think that a barefoot shoe is going to be exponentially better and they're not getting those stresses in those shoes, that's just definitely not the case. Like, have you ever seen a kid in supportive shoes play soccer and football and handball and things like that? They're still getting those stresses, but it, perhaps it's more in one of the barefoot shoes. Yeah, anything? I would be keen for us to do a, a full podcast on this topic. Yeah, and we will. get an expert on to, to talk more about it. I just had an expert talk. I don't know who no, I'm joking, but I don't know what expert is going to talk. No. I don't know who's going to talk about kids' shoes. Me we'll try either, and find someone. Yeah, I'd be keen to talk about that more. It's not something that I have to deal with very much. I mm. don't often get asked. Never about had a parent kids. ask you about kids' school shoes? No, I don't think I have. Hmm. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Right, well, let's lock it up, finish it up. Enjoy Adam Did It, guys, part one. back to another episode of the Sports Medicine Project. So Blake and myself here and another guest that we are very excited to, to have on, we have Adam Didix. So welcome, Adam. Thank you for, for joining us. How are you, Kelly Blake? So Blake. Adam is an Australian running coach and performance advisor with Athletics Australia. Uh, Adam is also the coach to recent Commonwealth Games gold medalist Jessica Stenson as well as an Australian Olympic team coach in athletics and endurance. So that was at Tokyo in 2021. Um, Adam is also the, the head coach of Team Tempo Run down in South Australia. We butchered that one a couple of podcasts ago when we were sort of guessing which um, squad you were a part of, Adam, so apologies, but Team Tempo Run. Bye. So welcome. Can you, um, you know, I guess edit any, any errors that I have made and, and give us a little introduction to yourself? Yeah, I'll, I'll simplify and let you know that we're uh, referred to as Team Tempo. But um, yeah, uh, we're we're sort of very fortunate here. We've got a got a great squad based out of Adelaide. Um, we work with a number of runners around the country, and um, you know through the great sport of ASICs, we've been able to sort of continue to grow and develop the professionalism what we have to to offer. And you know, hopefully, it's something that that continues to um, to provide a great environment for people to you know I guess explore their their running goals. So. Yeah, I've been been coaching now for uh, about 14. I'm going to my 15th year, I reckon, of coaching, um, wow. which, uh, as I've only just entered my 40s, is is well ahead of uh, where I plan to be in life. Um, <laughs> I, I, sh- I should have been a novice at this point, but just there are a few early injuries and things like that, took up coaching rather early. I um, was fortunate enough to have some good athletes that sort of came in, um, Jess being one of them from the very early stages, and kind of just... Um, uh, sort of took it uh, hook, line, sinker, and and went with it, uh, and decided that to pursue the coaching aspect of what I was doing in athletics was probably becoming more important to me than my own running. So uh, it's sort of where I've been centred for for a number of years. I uh, started off um, with a very small group um, with probably state level based athletes here in South Australia, um, and yeah, it's, it's a bit of a whirlwind looking back on it. Um, I, I kind of in in reality, um, you know, always hoped and dreamed to be able to work with people on the Olympic level and things like that. I think many coaches do, um, and you know, I, I feel very fortunate to to have been able to um, have athletes put their faith in me who have the talent and ability to do that, and and, and hopefully the the guidance I provide them has been appropriate to help them achieve that. That's great. That's really cool. And uh, how did you get into to coaching how did that all start yeah I was one of those athletes who 
probably was never really destined to make it. Sort of hoped that I would. Um, but then in my mid twenties, uh, mid to early twenties, after I came back from college in the US, I had a fairly persistent Achilles injury, which eventuated me um, getting surgery on that. Um, and it was during that time that I sort of explored coaching one of my friends. Um, and as, at the point where I was starting to rehab and get back into it, um, I also took on a, a larger squad after their, their coach decided to want to continue on. Uh, one of the athletes in there was, was my girlfriend at the time, um, <laughs> and who's now my wife. Um, and, and Jess, who was overseas, was part of that squad too, and then came back to find out there's a new coach of the squad. So um, she's sort of been there right from the start. Uh, and, and I got back running uh, through those early years of my coaching. But as, as I said, like it was probably 2012 where I was at the Olympics with Jess and I was sitting in a, in a room with all the athletes and coaches and I was, you know, saying, saying to myself, like, this is where I always dreamed of being as an athlete, wanting to make the Olympics. And I sort of decided at that point I was, I was 30 or just, I just about to turn 30 and decided, hey, I'm, I've failed as an athlete. I haven't made this level. I don't think I'm capable of making this level. Um, but I'm here as a coach, so maybe that's where I've got to put that that emphasis. So, so I continue to push on with the coaching there, and, and kind of left the priorities of my own running behind. Um, whilst it was still valuable to be able to run with the athletes, uh, that sort of had its own decline, and um, got to a point where where I just wanted to, you know, uh, use my one percent as I used to use for myself as an athlete in my coaching. And you know, at the time I was a full time teacher, so you know, you, you've got to make some choices. How you're going to spend your time, and and I recognised that um, that I was enjoying my coaching enough that it was a very easy transition for me to make. So um, that's kind of where it all began. Um, like I said, it's probably since uh, Jess's success, um, it's uh, I guess uh, drawn in other athletes who who have similar ambitions, and, and that's what I'm sort of meaning. You know, I'm very fortunate to have had a talent to work with that then has um, has been able to showcase what I've been able to do as a coach and and have other athletes who are, who are willing to to I guess put that faith in me to to deliver the same sort of results for them so you know my my evolution as a coach I, I think is you know again I still look back even only five years and cringe at the sort of coach <clears> I was at those times and um, but I, I guess that's high performance and that's what I've entered into which is you know always looking for ways to be better always looking for ways to improve things and that's not just in the athletes I work with, but in the way that I behave as a coach and the way that I prescribe training and the way that I uh, perform um, in and around uh, that performance development and, and execution of those goals on race day. So um, mm. it's been a pretty steep learning curve, but I'm, I've, I've enjoyed the journey, but it's, it's by no means been an easy journey. It's, it's been pretty challenging, confronting at times, um, but, uh, you know, it's, that, that's coaching, you know. If you're not prepared to go into that, you don't. It's not worth entering in. It's, um, yeah. You know, you have you have to commit to it quite um, extensively if you're going to work with athletes at this level. Yeah, and that's a good segue into our our first question. What do you think, or or do you have any kind of key training philosophies that you tend to stand by? And I'd imagine over the years, five, ten, fifteen years, they would be constantly developing. But are there are there any that have kind of stood the the test of time? I guess. Yeah, look, I, I, it's a, it's an interesting question, and, and I, I've been in workshops and things where they said, oh, you know, uh, you, you've got to develop your philosophy, you've got to do this, and you know, and then I've been the ones that say you've got to, it's got to be so succinct you can write it on the back of a stamp, and and I've basically almost rejected the urge to do that, um, not because I'm not courageous enough to stick to 
a philosophy, but I've just found it's just been ever changing and evolving as I've learnt more, uh, more about the way athletes um, engage as, uh, in in that idea of um, you know performance development and that engagement with a coach, but also as as we learn more as we as we trial different things, um, we change our point of view and our perspective on on training and um, and all of that. So. You know, as I said, it, it is an evolution. It is an evolution that you go through. Um, and but I'd probably say um, there's a couple things that um, that I really stick to as as a coach. It's um, it's you know uh, work with the individual, not just the athletes. And that's really about providing a, um, a greater context around what that performance means. It, I, I've sort of found that over the years, if if we become too focused or um, on one goal and we don't acknowledge the world around the athletes being their family, being their relationships, being their career, being their own personal ambitions, um, then that goal might be achieved, but it might not be a sustainable career for that athlete. So um, so I feel like, you know, treating them as individuals means you accept all of that. The other part of that is it actually helps you a lot as a coach to to connect with your athletes. If you understand them, you know how to, how they tick. So, you know, a, a lot of what I sort of look at is is how do we make the training work for an athlete? And that's just not on the physiological side of things, but psychologically and emotionally. How do we help them to, to sort of um, drive all of those aspects towards their performance? Um, and if I don't take the time to understand the individual, it's going to be very hard to connect and tune in and have a very, um, you know, positive and, and uh, I guess, progressive relationship with that athlete. So, so that, that's one part. Uh, one probably real key thing is and healthy, a healthy athlete is a fast athlete. So I, um, I'm very conscious and, and really do not compromise someone's health just for performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see examples of this at times sport, sport, you know, we always look at sport as a healthy pastime, but when you're asking so much from someone physically, you know, there's that point of, um, you know, trying to push someone as far as you can for them to maximise what they can do um, from a training perspective, you know, with the hope of, of keeping them safe from breaking and all those sort of things, you know, and injuries and illness and the rest of it. But I've always found if we focus on health as a priority, then the performance exists. And that health is not only physical, but uh, mentally and emotionally as well. And if we don't factor those things in, then we don't have an athlete who has a, a great capacity to, to be the athlete they want to be and they're, they're capable of being. So um, I guess those, those two philosophies sort of work hand in hand. Um, but yeah, they're probably my two key things. So it doesn't give you a lot on the, on the side of training. But then again, I, I also feel that, uh, you know, one of my coaches was a guy called Sean Crichton, and when he first took me on, he mm. he took myself and one of my mates on, and and uh, we sort of started talking about what sort of training we're doing. He goes, "Well, that depends on what kind of beast you are. You know, you might be a you might be one that responds really well to this training, and or someone that responds really well to this sort of to a different type of training. And we need to work out what that is for you. So, um, I don't like ever being perceived as someone who's more mileage based or more speed based. Mm. I'd like to feel that there's enough. Um, versatility in our training prescription to suit what the athlete requires, um, to suit what their event demands are. And even that can be different. You know, for someone who's running 800, some might approach it from mileage and some might approach it from a speed end. At the end of the day, you know, I don't have a 
a typical training philosophy. I, I, I try to try to work with uh, with what the athlete is comfortable with, happy with, and uh, attains the desired results. So you know, um, there's always that thing. There's there's many there's many ways of achieving it. We've got to find the right one for the athlete. So I don't have any fully locked in training principles other than uh, philosophies other than to say, um, you know, we try to find what uh, what works best for the athlete. Mm. And out at one of our training sessions, you, you you'll see sometimes four, five, six different training sessions happening. So we try to work them in where we can uh, so they can train together, but we also need to be conscious of what the specific needs are. Mm. Do you find like on the somewhat of the topic of, of training and different modalities to measure training, like talking about RPE and what we were saying, and we were talking about a lot of these questions when Kelly and I have actually been running together, which helps if you yeah. want to talk about running while you're running. And we've, we've heard you talk a little bit about like RPE with your athletes as well. Can you speak to like monitoring training intensity and overall load, like using RPE and what kind of scale that you use? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I tried looking at training quantification, for, for lack of a better word, um, back in probably 2014 um, when, you know, again, I was fairly young in coaching and fairly inexperienced. Jess, likewise, was, had, had a similar sort of inexperience in um, as an athlete and, and we were stuck on the kilometres a week type measurement, um, mm. which, which is kind of a bit hard to uh, navigate when you've got an injury. And, and this was in the period where she had a um, second metatarsal stress fracture and it was in the period leading into the Glasgow Commonwealth Games. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, there were points there where we just weren't sure if she was even going to make the start line. And so I started going, okay, we need to think about your preparation for Glasgow, but we need to think how can we actually achieve the training outcomes you need. I mean, a marathon is pretty simple. People like to complicate. It's pretty simple. It's a very dominant energy system, um, you know. So we just need to work out how the how to manage those stresses. So, so you know, long story here, but hopefully it gets to the point. But um, so we had to look at how we incorporated cross training. So then had to go, okay, how much does cross training actually value towards running? And Jess was used to running at that stage, 130, 140, 150 kilometers a week. And she just didn't feel like she was doing enough training to, to, to be ready for this marathon. So I had to go, okay, well, how do, we, how do I help her to understand that the amount of training she's doing is actually quite considerable? So um, I prioritized it. I said, okay, for if you're on the elliptical trainer, we're going to say every four and a half minutes on that, we're going to equal one kilometer in your training diary. On the bike, it was for every five minutes on there, that's going to equal one kilometer of your training. And, and almost to the point of discouraging her from using the rower that was at, in her house <laughs> because of her sister being a rower, um, and just knowing it didn't have a great deal of specificity for, for running. Um, we sort of, I said, for every six minutes on the rower, it's going to be one kilometre of running. And I think we, we all know that six minutes on a rower is not that damn easy. Um, and so, so we sort of tried to do that. And I tried to measure all this stuff out and chart and graph, um, you know, uh, how much training she was doing. And it wasn't until, um, it wasn't until I sort of continued to try to progress this idea. And we, and, you know, Glasgow went well. She ended up getting a bronze and, and ran just off her PB. So uh, she might have actually PB'd. So it was, a, you know, it was a great result. So we sort of validated with that process a little bit. But it was when I went to the, the Rio Olympics. So I was there as a, as a team coach. We were in the holding camp. And there was a, um, there was a guy called Ben Raysmith who, if you've any, ever looked up some of his research, he's done some mm. amazing stuff. And then I sat down and, and sort of cottoned on to the fact he was really interested in load monitoring and things. And so we sat down. And he goes, well, show me what you're doing. And he's like, yeah, 
that's all great. Let me show you a few things. And he talked us through, and I was just like, I'm light years behind where this guy is. So we we very I very quickly said, can I work with you to evolve my processes? And so he was the one who encouraged me to start bringing the idea of RPE. And I had I noted uh, the idea of RPEs when I had done uh, my strength and conditioning level one. Um, but, you know, it's very much, oh, that's fine, strength and conditioning. I don't really want to apply that to, to running. But um, then what sort of happened is as I worked with Ben, he said, okay, there's three things we need to have be able to collect off training sessions. It's time, it's distance, and it's their perceived effort, right? So RPE was included. Uh, Ben's very adamant about using the, the Borg scale. Um, so uh, I, I attempted to use that uh, without a great deal of success. The athlete's interpretation of the Borg scale kind of seemed to impact their perception of what the effort and intensity was required for that training session. Um, I also started to collect RPEs from them, but many of them would just repeat the RPE that I had put down in their training log because um, they'd go, well, we just did it the way you told us to do it. And I said, yeah, but I actually want to know if on that day that session felt harder to achieve the outcomes I prescribed or if it was easier. I, I want to know if that crappy night's sleep you had the night before mm. now made what I, ter- what I termed a five and you're going, actually, oh, I almost had to go to the well on that one because I just didn't have the energy. I was a seven. And so, therefore, what I prescribed and what they re- what they executed were, were two different things. So measuring their load, the actual load was different to my prescribed loads. But it did sort of come down to the fact that I, I almost had to start looking at RPEs as more a percentage of intensity. So, um, and that was, and that doesn't work out that nicely from a load monitoring point of view. Um, it's hard for me to compare from one athlete to another. I have to sort of work on what's specific to that individual and their understanding. Because, you know, some athletes are always going, oh, that was an eight or a nine, and others are always going, that's four or five. It's just, the way they perceive uh, the, the challenging notion of a training session. So I knew that from an athlete's perspective, they were going to view that differently. So we started getting to a point saying a race is a 10. It's always going to be get as much as you can out of that. You know, we don't want to leave anything in the tank. So we call it a 10. Most training sessions, so our more intense sessions, are a 7. I rarely would go up to an 8. Um, often if it's a bit lighter, we'll go to a 6. And like I said, I'm not prescribing this in line with what the Borg scale is because a five is very hard and we're looking at very, very hard, you know, five, seven. So, and it's not intended to be that way, but because I couldn't get the athletes to tune in on, on that scale, I had to sort of adapt it to, to their yeah. understanding. So, yeah. so that, that's kind of how we've done it. And, you know, there'll be, you know, them, but just basically saying, oh, he's put a six down for this means, okay, we're supposed to be holding back a bit. You know, or if he's put an eight, okay, he, he wants us to extend a bit on this one. You know, we, we've yeah. got to empty a bit more here. So I, I think in that sense, it's a it's a scale of prescription, but at the end of the day, it's probably more for my numbers at the end of the week. So I can, I can as I'm programming, look at distance and durational loads um, and quantify that. And I guess that's where my beginning story of saying, how do we quantify that uh, cross-training was really important because... Now we're sort of incorporating in our durational loads, both um, running and cross-training and any gym work they do. And any, any time they're spending developing their, um, themselves physically towards the demands of their sport or any time they're putting some stress on it, we are trying to quantify that. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's in, the, in the essence trying to align with what we discuss and keeping people healthy.
You know, I'm, I'm not looking at this as going, okay, what's their breaking point? Whilst there might be a point when we get to that, I'm more about looking at how do we keep them injury and illness free as much right. as possible? How do we minimise the risks to that? And that's certainly where Ben's research is based off of is whilst there is a performance aspect to this because we can go back and track what led to good performances and what might have um, what might have led to a performance decline or um, or overloading to the point where we've got um, a fatigue level that that's sort of not conducive to to the growth we wanted. Um, it's probably more based around how do we minimise injury um, risks and how do we minimise uh, health and illness risks. So. Yeah, that. I hope that gives you a good explanation. Of yeah, that was the great. Purpose of RPEs. Yeah. Yeah, I like RPE because it's it's certainly relevant. Like yesterday, I, I went for an easy jog in the morning, and I would have put my RPE as nine. Like I just was felt so fatigued from <laughs> the day before. So I think it is so worthwhile considering that. What about some other like physiological measures, like heart rate, or do you ever do like lactate testing, um, or, or factor in those when you're when you're looking at someone's training or is that not something that you'll uh, find relevant for your athletes yeah look uh, just, just one last thing on the rpes also is, is on training prescription before we move on to your next part is you know if i offer someone 100 kilometers a week and it's just jogging as opposed to 100 kilometers a week with intensity they're two very different training weeks so from a distance and durational load, that would be valued quite differently. So I'm I'm very conscious of that. And the other thing is if I do have an injured athlete and I do have to try to accommodate with cross-training, we can still keep some similar training values in there to, to align with their durational loads and just have some replacement. The other uh, the other sort of points that we do collect, and we're, we're just playing with this probably, we're probably about six to eight, uh, six months or so into uh, collecting HRV quite, um, quite uh, continuously. Mm. So... So uh, we sort of started being, uh, using the HRV for training app and, and obviously there's a, there's a lot of information on there. Marco Artini, who's developed that, has, uh, has done a great job. So um, we're using that again and I'm, I'm probably using that more again from that health perspective, you know, um, and the, to help guide the athlete to know if they need to hold back on a certain day or push. So, um, so they're getting really good at sort of measuring their, their HRV in the mornings and, and I can sort of get some uh, visuals on that each day. And, and uh, you know, we've got a number of athletes who we don't have linked on our coaching portal, but we'll rock up and say, oh, today's yellow. I've just got to just sort of be a bit conscious. So if they rock up and they've got a session with that eight RP, which is it's quite very rare in our group, to be honest with you, um, they might say, not sure today's the day that I can really push that. So, and if it's red, well, we'll just sort of discuss that. And, and where a lot of this sort of stuff began is um, I, I was really conscious with people's availability to train and get the outcomes out of the session. So, so a number of years ago, I started a scale, and I've spoken about this um, numerous times in the past, but, and I, I'll be quite honest, I do not use this anymore, but it is a consciousness of the athletes and the interaction I have with them if we're sort of trying to work out is today a, a valid day to push or not. So we, I used to collect um, four, four numbers and I'd, I'd say rate them out of five, five being it's crap, uh, one being it's good, right? And so I'd go, I'd go fatigue, soreness, health and stress. So those four areas and basically there's a maximum 20 points there. And if anyone was a five, I would automatically modify what the intention was on that day. Mm. Um, if it was, um, if they calculated all, all four of those values and it was between 15 and 20, it's a rest day. It wasn't even a question. Because if you're that close to your limit, it, mm. this is not about how tough you are. This is about how smart you are. 
And um, and so we would just say 15 to 20, you go home. I don't care if you've driven out to training, um, <laughs> you've warmed up, you feel like crap, you're going home. You're not going to get any value out of this training because you're only as good as, you're only going to get the benefits from the training you recover from. And if you set yourself up and you're in a, a debted state before you've even started, how are you really going to get much out of that? It's going to be an absolute death march. You're probably not going to hit your outcomes. It's probably going to hurt you psychologically and emotionally, and you're probably going to bury yourself and be sick or injured within a few days or a week. Um, so, you know, we're really conscious of that availability to train. And so if they were between 10 and 15, we used to, we used to say, hey, um, let's consider a modification here. Let's consider it. It's not a foregone conclusion, but let's consider it. And it's probably that modification will be based on which value was the significantly mm -hmm. higher one. So if there was no soreness but they were fatigued, well, we could probably get through. There's no huge injury risk there. There's some risk, but it might just be that we, we lessen the intensity. If it's psychologically stressed, then we might say, hey, look, this is just a night where you just need a bit of a circuit breaker. You need to use your running probably to satisfy that emotional, psychological state. You've had a really rough day. Just go for a jog because we know there's a level of tension in the body when you have a heightened stress level. That, again, puts you in a, in a greater um, context of injury or illness. So let, let's not push the, the envelope on that. If you're below 10, we just go on as prescribed, you know, act as normal. And, and I'm starting to see that with the HRV stuff, it's almost monitoring them uh, and giving, you know, uh, similar context to, um, to availability to train as what we were doing then. The, I used to literally go around with a clipboard and collect the numbers. I'd know the order and they'd just go, they'd go three, three, two, one or whatever. And I'd go put that down and I'd go home, type it into my spreadsheet and I'd keep track of that. And if I had some who had always high values and I'd sit them down and say, look, you're constantly presenting with high values. Is this, you know, we've got to maybe consider your lifestyle as to whether that's impacting your availability to train or, you know, constantly your stress is high. Well, is it a point where we might need to get you to work with a psychologist? Um, or on every, every uh, back then we used to do Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday training sessions. On every Thursday, you, you, you're a bit rubbish. So, um, so let's look at what Wednesday looks like to see if that's, adequate and you've recovered well enough from Tuesday. So we just play around with these things to, to, to try to get it there. One thing that I still use it for, and, and actually we, we sort of subbed in HRV um, last year when I had the athletes go overseas, I could literally look in each day and get a snapshot as to how are they coping with the training. They were at Attitude, they were in Albuquerque, they were away from home. The HRV was giving me a good indicator depending on what color was presenting. Um, and it's basically on the traffic light system. Um, that I could sort of be a bit ahead of things. So if I called them, sure. I'd already have a bit of a, hey, I've seen that you're, you're in the red today. Um, let's just have a discussion as to whether you do the session today or you pull it. Um, so, so we'd have those sort of things. But prior to that, I'd basically ask them to apply that, that scale out of 20 system sure. um, to, to talk about that availability to train. So if they, were, if they were injured, that would obviously present quite high on the soreness and these sorts of things. And it would help them make those decisions if I wasn't there. Um, in regards to some of those other things with heart rate, we do use heart rate um, intermittently. Um, I don't prescribe training based on heart rate. Um, oh, I know. I just wait. I don't do that. Six weeks. That's what <laughs> I've been, been doing. <clears throat> I'm interested so, why, though. Yeah, no, no look, I mean, <laughs> first and foremost, trying to get a bunch of athletes to continually show up with a heart rate strap is, is painful um, to. <laughs> you know, they've got to be very motivated 
to want to do it. And, and I spent years and years, even for our threshold-based runs, where I wanted, um, where I really wanted a connection with their heart rate, being their guide on their on their effort um, to, to 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 use a heart rate monitor. Um, but geez, after years of trying to wrestle this um, thing of your heart rate monitor should be on for your threshold sessions, and oh, my battery is flat, or some you know mm. useless excuses. But you know, I, I look back on that and just go, I got to the. This is becoming a pain in my butt. So yeah. um, I, I I would suggest there's a there's probably a difference with the level of athletes and their ability to tune in on what's the right intensity. And, um, and as you become a more established athlete and as you become more experienced, you probably don't need a watch or a heart rate monitor to guide you too greatly on that. Now, we are actually starting to see that, um, certainly through the use of, of HRV, that the collaboration with a, with a heart rate uh, for all of their runs is, is applying some greater information for us. So we're exploring that a little bit at the moment. So I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to using it. I wish I could use it a bit more. I wish I could get a bit more out of it. I guess the saving grace for me is that, um, you know, a lot of the watches these days have a risk-based heart rate monitor, so we can get a general sense. It's not lab, it's not lab level accuracy. I, reg- <laughs> I recognize that, but you can certainly see enough there to recognize that um, it's, they're overreaching or they're, they're coping well enough, right? So, yeah. um, so I think that, that to me is probably the key part of it. But when you're working with competitive athletes, they recognize pace. And they recognise the feel of that pace, and and um, and we talk to that, that pace. So I don't look at percentage of heart rates when I when I prescribe training sessions, but I probably you know in in reference to to something else that I think about when designing training sessions, I do look at what I perceive the lactate levels should be for certain athletes in certain paces, and that's probably what drives the way I design a training session. Um, I also see, you know, from another reason as to why I don't do some of this is because I can see heart rate can also be, um, it, it can also change quite quickly depending on the environment someone's in, you know, um, and that may not always be a, a physiological driver to that heart rate being changed. It could be a psychological thing. You know, we know that someone's heart rate will go up if, if they get scared or something like that. So mm-hmm. if they're stressed in the environment, now it doesn't mean that it's invalid to collect. I actually think there's still some validity to that the same as what we're talking about in that stress scale. But, you know, in, in seeing the fact that many athletes don't find the heart rate strapped that comfortable to wear, they don't want to wear it, they feel restricted by that, I, I've kind of just gotten to the point of I'm not going to continue to bang the old drum. Um, yeah. But I, I myself, I myself uh, really committed to wearing a heart rate monitor and, and, I, and I'd say to them, after a while, you don't even recognise it's there. Half the yeah. time you go and have a coffee and stuff like that, and it's still on. You're like, oh, geez, I've still got my heart rate strap on when you're about to jump in the shower. So, so I don't really, I don't really buy into that. But again, if, if people are not overly motivated to do it, and if I'm not using it specifically in my training prescription discussion, then it's not an absolute critical marker for me to to reference. Um, yeah. And as I said, if I was working with recreational runners who didn't weren't as tuned into their pace and intensities. I would find it a much more useful tool. Um, and I did do that uh, with, with rec runners and when I coached in the past and I referenced them with V dot scales and those sort of things, which then gave some heart rate guides to them. So it, it sort of allowed, allowed people to get feedback in the way uh, or um, guide, guidance in the way that would make most sense to them, whether that be pace or heart rate 
or those sorts of things. But um, yeah, it really depends on the training outcome I'm trying to achieve. I've been trying to get Kelly to get one. I mean, oh, there are some benefits. I just think you look really cool. Because if someone sees you running with a heart strap, I think that guy thinks I'm a good runner. And then if Kelly and I both have one, they're like, these guys must be in this big elite group running with their strap. But it is cool. It's interesting. Except when you go up like, if I go up a little incline these days, I'm horrible with the heels. It just peaks. And I hate seeing that look down and go, this sucks. This is horrible. I wanted to, you mentioned a little bit about about lactate and this is there's a couple of I guess it's all questions in one yeah. I wanted to, to ask kind of your and the way that you would explain it to people and for clinicians listening to this how they can explain it to patients um, and people that they're coaching like the different systems involved with running like the aerobic and anaerobic and I guess you could probably include lactate in there and also what lactate clearance is and, and how we yeah. generally think about it yeah no look I mean there's some there's some pretty interesting concepts and there's a there's a lot of work to be done on it and you know um, I'll give you a basis of information and 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 people can sort of um, see if they if they can apply it in a similar way I guess you know typically when we look at energy systems it's about how much on oxygen you can get in your system for for the intensity you're trying to provide so if you run really hard and and you feel that lactic lactic acid build up that's because you you can't get enough oxygen in there to to sort of uh, keep it at bay, and I think that's one of the one of the key things I took as an understanding with lactate is oxygen neutralizes it. So, so if we don't get enough oxygen in, that lactate is going to build up. If we can continue to get oxygen in um, into our muscles, then uh, then the the level of um, lactate buildup will not be that great. So, when we're running at a slower pace. There's obviously an ability to get lact uh, oxygen in significantly, therefore our lactate levels stay lower. When we're running um, all out, um, our oxygen um, uh, absorption is, is not as great and therefore the lactic acid will continue to build up. So that's basically the way I perceive it. And, and it's been years of watching lab tests and, and I probably take more note on the lactate levels at certain paces for the athletes than anything. Um, and that's, that literally is my guide to how efficient they are at certain paces. And so as I um, design a training session, I look at how much exposure do I want them to have to certain lactate levels, right? And so when you're looking at creating an efficiency at a certain zone, you have to work a bit above it. You can't always work below it and just expect that that efficiency is going to increase. You'll get efficient running at that pace. Um, because your body will adapt to that stress. But if we want to push our efficiency up at a higher at a higher pace, then we have to go a bit beyond it. So when we're talking about lactate clearance, uh, and this is this is the you know reading I did um, with, uh, with with the guy who's become my friend Steve Magnus over the years. Um, you know it, there was a, there was a, a an article he wrote, and it was a very simple article, and he's very good at explaining these concepts in a very basic way, which is very helpful for me. Because as I said before we started recording, I'm a bit of a science dud. So um, to have someone who can explain these things in a very, very simple context is, is great. So, you know, basically uh, with Steve, you know, he wrote this article about lactate clearance and he said how there's a lot of people doing threshold runs, tempo runs to try and increase efficiency. And yes, they do have their place and they do have their time. But there's also that consideration about how do you play with that time and that that um, that stressor where we're going above and below. So a lot of what we do in you know fartlek sessions where we're in where we're increasing pace and then where they're dropping back and then increasing again, dropping back. It's about the lactate levels, you know, sort of uh, responding to that. So 
So we started off on a on a protocol that um, sort of was 800 on 800 off. So it was 800 meters where we build our lactate levels to to um, to and and obviously it probably won't happen on the first one, but by the second or third one, um, it'll become quite stable there um, to a certain level. And then we give it enough time to sort of drop our lactate levels, and then we go again and we push it up, and then we pull it back down. And so uh, I, I guess I guess how that sort of if you if you think about a a line there and you're going above and below that line, you're sort of working to push that intensity up because you're exposing yourself to a greater lactate level. Therefore, your body learns to adapt to um, becoming more efficient. So that's basically the principle that I've sort of applied to that. And, and, I, and I probably have done that with, with the majority of training sessions. So um, in the training sessions, all right, there, there's a few sessions where there's consistent sort of paces throughout the whole session. Like It's like if we start 1K reps, um, sometimes I'll say I want them to increase, I want them to get faster as we go. Sometimes I'll say I want this today, I want them kept all the same pace. Sometimes I'll say, okay, you got eight of them. On the fifth and seventh one, I want you to run harder, and that's to mm. push your lactate levels up, and then to do the next one and keep it as a as a almost at what we call our control pace. So there's different ways you can you can do the same session um, to to play around with those lactates. So it it will be fairly regular just to make sure that we tap into the road aerobic system regularly um, and keep that topped up that I'll start with some threshold running and then we'll do some fast reps afterwards and have to be really diligent and the athletes have to be really committed to executing that well because they can get a bit carried away and all of a sudden they go into the what, what the key specific part of their session is a greater lactate levels and all of a sudden they're not able to produce the, the output that they want. So um, so yeah, that, that's what I'm saying like with the athletes about instructing them as to what we want to get out of a session, helping them understand that they can then execute it effectively because we are playing with those levels. In regards to collecting it, yeah, we're not great with that. I've got a, a, a anyone who wants to uh, flick me a really good lactate scout, great. But uh, the one that I've got is a bit of a dud. So, uh, so if anyone wants to cheap one, oh, it's, it's on sale. Um, and the other, the other part of it is, I mean, a lot of the time it's just me out at training. And if I'm collecting lactate levels off someone, that means I take, I take my eye off what's going on in the training and I can't be there as a coach. So unless yeah. I can establish the situation where I can have a, um, someone out there whose sole responsibility is to collect lactate so I don't have to think about it, um, I'll, I'll definitely be keen on that. But the reality is I'm pretty bad at collecting the blood. Um, I'm, uh, you know, the athletes get to the point of going, oh, look, can you just leave me alone so I can... You know, get my breath back into the recovery yeah. and train. So, so it's more stresses them out during the session. But uh, yeah, geez, I'd I'd love to have um I'd love to have more regular check-ins on people's lactate levels during training yeah. sessions. Uh, no, nothing would be the more gold standard to me than be able to actually have a watch that tells me their current lactate level. You know, um, but I don't think we've got the technology to be there. But that would certainly that would certainly be my coaching dream. Mm. So. That's kind of, I guess, the, the way we sort of value that. And I guess alongside that comes the, the different pace zones that you sort of work in. And again, when we're working with competitive athletes, they'll understand what their 400 pace is, their 800 pace, their 1500 pace, the 5K and half. They, they could tell you basically and zone in on the specifics of those paces just by being told, okay, today's 400s, we're at 5K pace and bang, you'll see it within a second. Um, but that that's an experienced athlete who who can um, achieve that. Um, so there's that side of it. The other part of it is um, power output is to me something that needs to be considered when we look at efficiency. 
So when we look at a marathon runner and go, why do they do work at a faster pace in the marathon? It's not just for the, the physiological, um, I guess, the, or the internal operations of, of you know, cardiorespiratory. It's, it's more about, it's just as much about getting that power output. So when you run faster, it's not necessary that your legs are turning over quicker. The power output that you have on the ground is greater. So, you know, I'm, I'm real conscious of exposing people to greater power output. So, you know, when you're running slower, the, then the amount of, uh, you know, your stride length increases, not just because you reach out further, because you travel a greater distance in the air than you would um, when you're running slower. So that power output for me is something that, that we need to get some efficiency too. So, you know, that plyometric value to be able to, to, to repeat consistently is, is important. So when we see athletes get faster and all of a sudden, um, you know, that's transferred to the marathon, it's probably because um, their, their body recognises that they can run more efficiently at pace because they can deliver that power um, right. effectively. Um, so so that's, that's another part of when we're looking at different paces, some of the things that need to be considered. So we've got, you know, you've got your heart rates, you've got your lactates, you've got your power. There's a bunch of things that are being considered there um when we're when we're operating at different paces yeah mm. kelly i know i can see that um, question in your eyes <laughs> um adam i want to pivot a little bit because we we spoke about this briefly off air before we um started recording about the sort of um emotional uh role that you play in a lot of athletes and and i'm interested to hear what advice you have to or advice you give to athletes who firstly haven't performed as well as they would hope to um, and then also to athletes who, who have performed really well and to try and uh, I guess keep their ego at bay but make sure that they are going to continue to perform well and that hasn't sort of taken over them so I think they're interesting questions that I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on. Yeah look I mean from my perspective the work I do is based off of the relationship I have with the athlete so it's about having a good level of trust and having a good understanding of each other. Um, you know, at times you have to have hard conversations. At times you need to be empathetic. And, and there's, there's nothing I can say is more critical for a coach is to have a good level of emotional intelligence. If you don't have that, you, you're really limiting the, the, um, the depth of your relationship that you can have with an athlete. Um, and so when it, comes to, when it comes to that emotional side of things, I mean, a big reason why I go out to training sessions is not just to call out the time on the side of the track. Um, they, they've got their watches. They can do it themselves. It's to spend time with them, to see how they're going. Um, you know, watching them walk to, to, the, to the warm-up from their cars is, is almost yeah. one of the most valuable parts of it. Um, and I try to observe how they interact with others in the group and, and all those sorts of things. And you can start to see people who might be a bit flat or things are going on and, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes I've even gone up and go, gone to someone, you know, how, how's things going? They're okay. And, you know, I said, said oh, are you sure? And they're like, and then they get into it with you and, and they're like, how did, how did you know? <laughs> sometimes yeah. I just saw that you weren't yourself today, saw that, you know, you weren't really interacting with the group the way you normally do. And, and you know, look, I'm, I'm a real emotional being myself, you know, and I know, I know there's been times where that's been to my detriment. And so I'm really conscious of that. And if I have that understanding of myself, I need to respect that others might present in the same way. And, and I know that sometimes you rock up to training or a race and it's just, you're just not there. And so how do you help them to present 
on the days they need to present. I mean, you can't just take that as a non-trainable aspect of an athlete. Otherwise, you're just rolling the dice whenever they rock up to the race, hoping you get a six and they have a good race. So when I when I factor in the psychological side of things, if we're sort of trying to enable peak performance, the the key is, is part of, I remember in my sports psych studies, um, there was this, uh, for peak performance, there were these four intertwining circles. And this, this had a big impact on me because I remembered it uh, more than most things I, I did when I studied mm-hmm. and, uh, and utilised it to map out the profile of where an athlete might be sitting at certain times leading to it. And I've literally sat down with these four circles drawn in front of people and go, okay, what's pulling these away from centre and what do we need to do to put them back towards the centre. Because if you think about peak performance being that intersecting segment of those four circles, we can only expect the truly best performance from an athlete if we can get those four areas together. You know, they might be very good without that, but they could be better if they had that there. So we always look for how we do that. So this is about understanding the individual. So, you know, those those areas, um, uh, um, mental, physical, emotional and spiritual right so and, and you know i always have to say but that disclaimer: the spiritual is not a oh how aligned are they with their religion at the moment it's just about do they have a do they have a a contextual belief that you know are they optimistic do they feel like they they have belief in themselves that they can and and that good things are going to happen to them not rock up at the track yeah well of course it's windy it's always windy whenever i rock up at the track i never get good conditions i mean that's not going to assist but if they're physically away from the centre, that might be through injury or fatigue or soreness. Yeah. So we've got to work out what's our strategy to get that back. If they're um, psychologically, uh, something's going on, if they've you know, got some mental health issues or something like that, then we need to address those things so we can push that circle back closer towards the centre. Um, if they're emotionally, I mean, you know, if someone's, uh, someone's dog dies and they've got a really close association, they've got to rock up to a race two hours before, like, how do we have that conversation identify that that's going to be an impact on their performance? You know, it might be a, a variety of many things um, that, that, that might create an emotional response. So how do, we, how do we sort of have that conversation? I think that, again, comes down to that trust and understanding of both coach and athlete that they, they are comfortable with being vulnerable with me, but they also recognise that I'm there to be their coach and support them to achieve the result they want. So... Sometimes I know I help them unpack that, but it's in an effort to, okay, we've got to get this, we've got to get you in the place where you can go and perform right now. And, uh, and I've, I've, you know, this is a, probably one of the more critical parts of when you're a team coach and um, trying to establish relationships with people so that you can actually identify, okay, something's, we need to, we need to adjust something. We need to have a chat and adjust something here because you can see that they're not quite operating and functioning in their best right. And, and a lot of time you're dealing with athletes who are, who are the stress response is based on nerves and, you know, these sorts of things. So, you know, how do you, how do you get that? Or, or, you know, in the Olympics, it might be their, 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 their brother or their mum or someone cracked at them because they couldn't get tickets and why didn't they help them more? <laughs> yeah. It could be any, any sort of factors for that. So, so on the emotional side of things, that that's really quite critical. And I, and I think, you know, having someone who's, um, both physically and mentally healthy is is really important. And as a coach, we need to be conscious of it. And and look, I mean, many times you sit there and go, geez, this is stepping a bit beyond my realms of being an athletics coach. But um, there is a consciousness that this stuff is important to allow that person to have the greatest capacity on that day to perform. And I think that is that is the critical part of here is how do you increase someone's capacity to perform? 
And, uh, and if, if something's impacting on their capacity to perform on that day, it's like, okay, the odds of them uh, performing well on that day are lessened. So we need to increase the odds that that's going to be a good day for them. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, to pivot here a little bit. This is an area, and I'm very incredibly interested to hear your thoughts on this, and Kelly and I talk about this all the time. What are your, your thoughts on, I guess, the, the two topics of running, retraining, and running technique? in regards to injury and performance, because I would say that like, the research is somewhat clear, but then also on the flip side, the research isn't up with what people are exposed to dealing with elite athletes and seeing runners all the time. So, yeah, just wanted, wanted to yeah, see your thoughts on that. So if we're specifically talking about testing, I would say I don't do a great deal of it. Um, and uh, and it, that's probably based off the the understanding that you know, one we race all year round. That's um, that's uh, you know that's distance running. You know, like you've got your track season, you've got your road season, um, and so so we race all year round. So we get pretty pretty frequent opportunities to to test ourselves. And and I know that's a very simplistic view. And basically, I would say there is still a lot of room for testing. And what I'd say the testing needs to identify is what are specific attributes you're trying to improve on, right? Um, the challenge here is, though, how do you prioritise testing uh, over, um, over training, um, I guess, development, development of those attributes? So how do, you, how do you trade in that training on those certain days to go, okay, we're just going to do testing today, knowing that the physiological trade-off might be might be lessened or um, to chuck it in between races where, okay, a race, as I said before, like, a, a, you know, we sort of value a race as a as an RP of 10, right? So if that's an RP of 10, you obviously, when you test, you want to test at 100% as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, you, 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 you're spiking loads with these sort of testing. I'm very much um, keen to see testing in the gym where possible because there's really specific refined attributes that we're trying to see development. Um, the one thing that I really value testing for is how do you know whether you've actually developed an attribute successfully? You know, it could be an execution of that as a skill, but that could also be a tactical improvement and deci- better decision-making, which, is, which needs to be tested at time as well, which is why racing and putting people in races to identify that is important. Um, but how do we know if the program in the gym is actually making the great the amount of benefit equal to the amount of time spent in it or is it just based on the fact that they've been able to do more training and therefore mm. their performance improved so i feel like whatever we do we need to get some validation that we're actually on the right track and we're doing the right thing so um i would say rather than have standalone testing sessions from a running perspective um i'll i'll be able to recognize whether they're coping at certain paces um, to, to recognise whether that shift in that attribute that we're trying to develop has occurred um, yeah. and, and link that in with what they're doing in racing. Now, I would say that distance running is probably one of those things where the, what I've just suggested is more the case than not. But when we start looking at sprinting and things like that, um, because their load from a durational point of view may not be the same, there's probably a little bit more room for it. Or we've got a situation where there's a there's greater versatility or variety of paces that people have to be present in distance running uh, to be competitive. Whereas in sprinting, you're really looking at, okay, what's your first 30? Okay. And then it might be, okay, what's your, what's your peak speed? 
to be able to know how to apply that effectively to know that there's growth there because you can't just always judge it off a 100-metre race because, um, you know, fatigue could set in and, and whilst uh, you might have had a, a greater peak speed, the endurance to be able to hold that might be lessened. Likewise, where, where, the, where the racing doesn't allow you to test effectively all the time from a um, distance perspective could be if it's a tactical race, you don't get to see the full um, capacity of that athlete if the pace was faster, could they have run a much better pace? So, you know, we're always looking for different, different opportunities to, to test different aspects. So, you know, there'll be specific races where we go, the priority here is to race. So we don't care about the pace. We just care about the racing. And if, if the tactical development of an athlete is what's at question, then I'd put them in races where we'll have that tested. If we're looking typically at, okay, how fast can you actually run? Then we'll look at a race with a pacemaker to know that it's going to significantly challenge an athlete to get that attribute. Um, but ultimately, I'd say that, uh, again, with experienced distance athletes, they would be able to recognise from the feel and from the effort applied to get the outcome where their form's at at any, at any one time. Um, and because we have enough variety in our training sessions, uh, I'd get a pretty good idea and understanding in some areas where they are aerobically and where they are from a um, speed perspective because we, we would expose athletes to that within a training session.